All right, everyone, come on in and grab a seat. We're going to go ahead and get started with our time of teaching. Uh, how many guys are excited for Direction Sunday? Um, yeah, I had car trouble on the most important gathering of the year so far. So it's a real vibe this morning. I don't know if you've been late to work and then everyone knew. Um, but I'm going to pray and we will dive in. I know I need to be grounded. Father, thank you for this morning. Thank you for your abundant provision to us in Jesus. That you meet the, the needs of our soul, our need for identity, our need for community, our need for purpose, our need for redemption. And you give us so much more than what we need. And so this morning as we look at this idea of what you give to us, and what you do through us, I just pray um, that we would walk away like the people in the, the account we're going to look at this morning from John's gospel, full of gratitude either way, um, aware that you are doing more than we're often aware of in our lives, through our lives, in our church, and through our church. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, so to frame our time this morning, what I want to do is dive into a passage in John chapter 6. All right, John chapter 6. If you guys have Bibles, you can turn there, John chapter 6. If not, we will have the passages up here on the screen. And uh, it says this. It says, sometime after this. Now, after what? You might be wondering. Uh, and again, we haven't been working our way through John's gospel. We were working through Mark uh, these last few months. But according to scholarship and just a cohesive understanding of the chronological order of the gospels, this, the accounts of Jesus, of which John is one, it was, quite, it was after quite a bit of things in the life and ministry of Jesus. For example, Jesus uh, has already given the Sermon on the Mount. Uh, Jesus would have already turned water into wine, saving a wedding and covering um, uh, the name and dignity of a newly married couple and their families. At this point, Jesus would have had healed the Roman centurion's servants. Uh, Jesus would have raised a widow's son to life at this point, interrupting a funeral in the best way possible. Jesus at this point would have calmed a storm that was so intense that his disciples who were experienced seasoned fishermen who had spent their lives fishing this exact sea of Galilee feared for their lives. Jesus had healed many people and, and delivered them from dark spiritual forces and demons. Uh, Jesus at this point would have healed a bleeding woman who would have been ostracized by the community. Uh, she would have been uh, impoverished because she had spent all her money on doctors and had not gotten well. And on top of that, she was relationally isolated. She couldn't touch her friends or her family. And in an instant, her uncleanliness is removed and her dignity is restored and her relational world is fixed. Her identity is fixed and her body is healed. He then raises a girl from the dead and then he sends out the 12 disciples. So after all of that, John is saying, this happens. It says, Jesus crossed to the far shore of the Sea of Galilee, that is the Sea of Tiberias, and a great crowd of people followed him because they saw the signs he had performed by healing the sick, which we'll get into in a second. Verse 3, then Jesus went up on a mountainside and sat down with his disciples. The Jewish Passover festival was near. So two things are happening simultaneously. The first is this, is Jesus' fame is spreading, which means people are flocking to see him or hear from him or watch him do what he does. Um, 
And on top of that, the Jewish Passover festival is near, which some people are already mobile, many of whom would make a pilgrimage to Jerusalem, and some might be coming from the north of Galilee to head down to Jerusalem. Both of these realities mean that a large crowd is beginning to build. Now, I talked about this a few weeks ago when I taught on discipleship, but this time in ancient Palestine, during the Roman occupation, uh, Second Temple Judaism, the, the rabbis were the most sought-out, adored, respected people in society. Um, they were wealthy. They were essentially celebrities. They had adoring fans and students. It might sound funny to you now, uh, but they were incredible uh, in the eyes of, of the people. People would travel to hear rabbis, and they would flock to hear rabbis when they came to your town. Like when a musician is on tour, or, or, or when this year's Boston Celtics come to your city and you've got an NBA arena, people want to see them do what they do. Most efficient offense in NBA history through 50 or so games. Anyway, sorry, a little off track. There were no rabbis. Here's, here's the thing. Even in a society that respected rabbis like that, there were no rabbis doing what Jesus was doing. So crowds would form, and crowds were really forming in this case. Think kind of Taylor Swift era's tour, Coachella level of insanity. Think a big festival, not super planned out. Everywhere Jesus goes, kind of Beatlemania, Jesus mania. Imagine Coachella, no generators. Gross. Also, probably you're hungry. And with all these people there, how is food going to work? Which leads us to verse 5. It says, when Jesus looked up and saw a great crowd coming toward him, he said to Philip, where shall we buy bread for these people to eat? He asked this only to test him, for he already had in mind what he was going to do. Um, has anyone seen that movie, like the, the Wilder People or whatever? I heard uh, Rod, Rod Nicholas is a fan. He's a tricky one, that Jesus. So Jesus, if you've seen the movie, you get it. If you don't, you don't. If you know, you know. Um, but a lot of scholars point out, uh, again, Jesus is testing them here, but it seems that Jesus is attempting to get the disciples to attempt to do the miracles themselves after having witnessed so many miracles recently. They also believe this uh, due to the fact that it would be consistent with how rabbis train their disciples, which we talked about a few weeks back. A test connected to performing an act that you had seen your rabbi do before. But just like you and I experience so often in our slow yet sure journey of becoming like Jesus, the disciples miss the point, miss the moment, and miss the opportunity. As we see here in verse 7, Philip answered him, it would take more than half a year's wages to buy enough bread for each one to have a bite. <laughs> and here's the thing. Philip, not really getting it. Also, if anyone would know where to get food, Philip would know because he was from Bethsaida, a town about nine miles away. But again, Jesus isn't asking where there is food or how much it would cost or to get a Google spread, you know, Google Sheets out. Jesus testing Philip to strengthen his faith by asking for a human solution, knowing there was none. Jesus highlighted the powerful, miraculous act that was about to happen. He's kind of setting the stage to experience what they're about to experience, which leads to verse 8. Another of his disciples, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, Peter's brother, spoke up. Verse 9, here is a boy with five small barley loaves and two small fish, but how far will they go among so many? At this point, Andrew, who's usually presented in the Gospels as Simon's brother, uh, he takes a subordinate position to Peter, um, and, he, and he takes an advantage of an opportunity kind of to, to join the discussion. Um, again, Andrew, by the way, is hands down my favorite character 
on the TV show The Chosen, which is a rendition of the Gospels, a show that's been a hot topic lately amongst some people in a church. I don't have time to get into it, but it's pretty good. But some people, again, some people are too cool for it. For other people, it changes their life. I don't have time to enter into that debate again. But back to the story. Apparently, a young boy has a kind of small Hebrew Lunchable. You got small fish, some small pita loaves, kind of like the pita pizza Lunchable, the good one back in the day, which isn't good. Like as you've grown up, my t- I, again, I don't ha- I'm not a foodie. I, I don't have a very refined palate. And I had Calvin, a piece of Calvin's pizza Lunchable a couple months ago, and I was like, this is trash. Um, <laughs> frankly, it's poison, but it's neither here nor there. But, but, but he's got this thing, and this cracks me up. One scholar said the first miracle was that this boy hadn't eaten his lunch yet. <laughs> You're welcome, Epps. Uh, it was Andrew who inadvertently answered Jesus' original question. Uh, he points out that the only available food was the boy's lunch, five small barley loaves and two small fish, which, by the way, barley loaves, don't think a loaf of bread. This is like a, pan, a, a mini pancake at McDonald's, probably much more nutritious. So five uh, very small pieces of bread, two small fish. This was the food of the poor of the day. And then Andrew adds this disclaimer, like, how far is that going to go among so many? Like, how far is this bread going to go? Now, again, whether Andrew's speaking in humor, hyperbole, like, we don't know for sure. But we can be fairly certain he didn't expect what was about to go down. Verse 10, Jesus said, have the people sit down. There was plenty of grass in that place, and they sat down. About 5,000 men were there. Verse 11, Jesus then took the loaves, gave thanks, and distributed to those who were seated as much as they wanted. He did the same with the fish. Now, scholars point out that they are likely around 20,000 people, as it was common in a patriarchal society to only count fully grown men in official records. This means a lot of people were fed. You can imagine, uh, imagine Judas, who was money hungry, thinking to himself, we should start a catering business, right? Bread and wine catering co. It's got a good ring to it. It works then, it works now. It's like, look out Waverly Bakery, look out Isola. Jesus' bread is coming to town. And he bakes it in an incredibly cost-efficient way. Like, you can just imagine the, the, the P&L, the plan um, Judas might have had. But all jokes aside, no one can believe what has happened. The hungry have been fed, and it's created gratitude in the hearts of pretty much everyone who was present to witness it. Verse 12 says, When they all had enough to eat, he said to his disciples, Gather the pieces that are left over, let nothing be wasted. So they gathered them and filled 12 baskets with the pieces of five barley loaves left over by those who had eaten, um, which means there are leftovers. You just sit with that idea of leftovers for a second. And I want you to think about the abundant provision of God to you and the incredible availability of God's ability to take whatever small thing you have and multiply it to do abundantly more than you can ask or imagine. That's the idea of leftovers, which means, this is, I have a slide for this, which means they go from a lack of provision to a lavish provision. They go from a lack of provision to a lavish provision, but how does it happen? And again, it happens when a boy presents a small lunch And the disciples disciples take that seemingly small, meager offering to Jesus, and he multiplies it into something life-giving, nutritious, and beautiful. Jesus chooses to use the disciples. Now, again, he didn't need to use the loaves and the fishes at all. 
he didn't need to use, uh, again, he, he's God. He could create things out of nothing. Yet he did. He chose to use what the disciples would find to put at Jesus' disposal. Again, we don't know why Jesus chooses to use people to accomplish his purposes because we tend to jack everything up. But he does. It was true of them. It's true of us. It would have been way more efficient with just Jesus. He loves to use messy, sinful, weak people who lack faith and his provision like the disciples, like you. I'm not talking trash, like me. A friend of mine, a man named Alan Frau, wrote about this passage in a book I love. He said this. He said, I have some questions about this story. First, was the lunch given willingly or taken? (laughs) There are no details of the exchange, simply that Jesus took the loaves as well as the fish. I have to give Jesus and the disciples the benefit of the doubt here because they don't seem like playground bullies. Still, I imagine a little boy must have been a little reluctant to part with his lunch, don't you? Another question, why a child? Why someone who has no easy way of replacing the resources they have given up? That seems unfair. But my biggest question is, why did Jesus need all five loaves and two fish for his multiplying miracle? If he was powerful enough to multiply loaves and fish for 20,000 people, why couldn't he have just done it out of one loaf and one fish, leaving the boy with the rest? He says, that's the rub for me in this passage. For some reason, Jesus requires the boy to hand over his whole lunch. He seems okay to leave him for a moment with nothing to eat himself so that the others can be fed. That moment must have felt like a lifetime on an empty stomach, again, of a child likely in poverty. Jesus seems comfortable invading the boy's margins in uncomfortable ways. This was not just a sandwich barter. This was a sandwich takeover for the sake of others. The miracle was made possible because the boy was willing for his whole lunch to be broken for the blessing of the crowd. This is the very heart of what it is to be used by Jesus for the sake of others, isn't it? We say, Jesus, use me to bring your life to others, and he does, yet very soon after we come back to him saying, Jesus, I feel used. I feel empty. He takes all we have, blesses it, breaks it, and multiplies it to bless others. There is no blessing of the crowds without the breaking of our loaves. Many people want to be a part of the blessing, but few want to take part in the taking and the breaking. Close quote. Now, again, it's a young boy who, based on his food of choice, is likely poor. So we've got a poor child in a society that didn't value children with meager resources, a meager lunch, and it's this small thing, and he offers it. And the key idea is, is it's not what's offered that matters as much as what's it, it, Jesus' ability to multiply it. Does that make sense? Now, the sacrifice to offer it matters a whole lot. We see that with Jesus and the two coins and the widow's might. Um, w- the, the sacrifice to offer it matters a lot, but how much the offering is, again, God's limitless. He's not like, oh, that's all you got. I guess I can't do what I want to do here. 
that's important for two reasons. Um, some of us, we do. God's entrusted us with a lot. He's given us time and margin and money and energy and relational connections, and he, he's entrusted with us a lot for the sake of the kingdom. But even no matter how big your thing is, it's not big enough to do what Jesus needs to do in this world. It still needs to be multiplied. So be faithful with the big thing you've offered. That being said, some of us believe the lie that we don't have anything to offer. We go, ah, oh, this, uh, right? Uh, when I get to a better season, and really, that season never really comes. Because by better, we mean perfect, or not needy, or not weak, or we have everything we want in our story first, and then maybe we can fit God's thing in later. But for a lot of us, we believe the lie that our gifts are insignificant. We don't know enough. We're not mature enough. We're not strong enough. We're not whole enough, right? Also, in a culture obsessed with self-care, which we're about, we're never rested enough. I don't have time to get into it, but when, when, have, when are you cared for enough to help other people? And that's something we don't talk about a lot. But here's what I want to say, is that many of you in this room have believed and stepped out in faith enough to offer what you do have over the years. And it's been beautiful. Like, it's going to be hard for me to talk for a while. When I consider the deposit of this church into the broader kingdom of God. Um, how many of you guys miss, miss Ashley and Scott Stroman? Does anyone miss them? Yeah, cool. Does anyone wish they would just come back? Cool, me too. Oh, not a lot. Okay. Wait, me, either <laughs> don't like them or really excited about the church plant. We'll get into that, right? How many of you guys miss Brad Syrian? That preaching, good night nurse, right? You got to deal with this every week when that could be what you're getting into. How many of you guys miss uh, Tom and Ebony? How many of you guys miss Herrick Berga, dude? Puerto Rican persuasion, dude. That guy got down to business. It's the best. It's like who, very few people love like that guy and, and care like that guy. I was sitting with uh, my spiritual director a couple years ago. And he just said, hey, man, like, um, or she, not he said, hey, who, like, who, who, when you're in their presence, helps you encounter the tangible presence of God? And I was like, oh, Tom. Like, literally, I'll be with him for 10 minutes, and I'll feel grateful for something and aware of God doing something in my life that I've missed. He's got, like, a lens to see things. Um, uh, James and Faye Gutierrez were celebrating their birthday last week. Uh, James, they don't have the same birthday. That'd be a funny thing for a couple. And I just think about the way they went out and what they have done. Uh, we sent Paul and Nicole. We got them back, which is huge. Um, sometimes God brings them back, you know. But as a church, like, you've sent out so many incredible people. And there's more people than that. I don't even have time to name. Oh, you guys miss Maria? Dude, she's the best. My kids miss Maria all the time. But as a church, um, the thing you need about our church is we've never been big. Um, right now, we average about 75 people on a Sunday, including kids. The average church in America, uh, 64 on Sundays attendance, okay? Um, so that could feel like a downer. We're so lame uh, or whatever. Um, we're not. <laughs> Jesus, at his prime, he had 72 people. He had 72 disciples, and he changes the world to that number. And I remember listening to Jeff Vanderstadt one time, and he said, why do we view a number like 72 as failure in the American church when in almost any other country it would be a big church? It'd be a mega church in Tunisia. <laughs> and on top of that, that was G the size of Jesus' church. Was he like a failed pastor? Like, Jesus, man, he just wasn't good with logistics. Could really whip up a catering situation and 
save people, but man, right? This crowd's never really took off. But here's the thing you need to know is that today, um, at Restored LA, 350 people will gather for Sunday worship today. Yeah. Yeah. In South Bay, uh, well, let's, let's just go in order. Today, this morning in India, in Hyderabad, seven people gathered at Maria's table. Um, today at 4 p.m., about 20, they've averaged 25, somewhere between 19 and 35 people, likely, unless revival breaks out, will gather in a church's youth room for restored ranchos worship gathering. Julia preached at it last week. Um, it, it's great. It, it's, it's slowly moving. They're going to have their first Easter service. they got a location for their Easter service. I'm thinking like 50-ish people will, will show up. But yeah, around 25 people will be there. Um, in Denver, uh, Josh, another guy, did a residency with us for six months. We sent him about $50,000, uh, joined our family of churches. Um, 100 people will gather today in Denver. Again, unless revival breaks out or the church splits. In Temecula, 225 people will gather um, with Tom Ebony, Herrick, Heather, and them. Uh, down in South Bay today, uh, they're averaging so far this year, 254 people will gather at South Bay. And it took Jimmy and Jess. I was like, you guys have enough people, man. And then again, we'll have about 70. That's kind of what we do. Now, here's the thing. We, we've maintained our size as we've sent out. God has continued to refill the basket. Grant and I were talking. We we're talking a second. We want to ordain deacons this year. And frankly, there's too many people in a church this size to figure it out. It's like a problem because of how many people have such leadership capacity and ability. In addition... To help get all these churches started in terms of sowing resources, this church has given over $400,000 away to church planning and missions and helping the poor in the last 11 years. Again, not a big church. I have a friend of mine who planted a church recently, and he planted out of a, pretty, a very big church, uh, much bigger than ours, with a lot more money than us. And they're giving him less than we gave for Give Love two times ago, and they're spreading it out over two years. And I just want you to catch, like, this is a remarkable community that's made possible. And again, I just don't think you understand. I was up at Rancho's. Uh, I, I led a meeting for them on Monday, a few Mondays ago. And I'm sitting with a girl who's experienced deep church burn, spiritual abuse. And she's praying out loud, thank you, Jesus, for choosing Rancho to have her restored at. And she has a sibling at Restored Temecula and just on a whim, say, hey, you should check this thing out. Met Scott and Ashley, and they've done what they do, which is love people. Uh, this is public. You guys throughout the retreat heard this, and there's a recording of it. Um, I walked alongside um, Scott's sister-in-law, Alicia Stroman, who experienced deep spiritual abuse, different person, heartbreaking story. She shared on the panel at the retreat, um, seeing her come to life and walk into a church again and feel excited about that. Like, that's no small thing. And it's, a lot of it's made possible because of this community. I mean, you're talking about reading the Bible. She didn't want to read. She had been so hurt that she didn't want to read the Bible with her own children or tell them about Jesus. And now she's, like, excited to help co-lead, you know, a kid's ministry, like get involved and, and do these things. And so, again, all these things are, again, I can get going on and on and on. I, I, Tunisia, there's so many things. A couple in Denver. It's a girl who was a stripper and had a really rough life 
and her marriage was falling apart, and there was adultery, and she met Jesus, and their marriage was healed in that church, which again, you, like there's so many things you're not even aware are happening. God multiplies out work that you don't see. Does that make sense? I was talking to, to Jamie with uh, Harbor City, the, the lead pastor of Grant's Old Church in Durban, and they, again, they had been through a pandemic. They had been through, they already have a very fragile economy that gets devastated even more with the pandemic. They don't have any of the recovery stuff we have in America. You have townships where people's houses are just destroyed. They have a ton of people leaving. And uh, he just said, hey, man, like, I had, like, kind of a, a conversation where I was kind of challenging him. And I was like, hey, is this okay? He's like, dude, I received from you. Like, our church wouldn't exist right now without this family of churches and without Uptown. And, again, they're, they're, they're growing again. They're pushing 70-ish people a week. They've got two elder candidates. Uh, stuff's happening. And Jamie's like, man, maybe we could plant something. So, like, I don't know, I'm thinking about, like, what we could do. And this kind of moves us into, so here's what I want to say is like, before I even get into any of the other stuff, like you're a remarkable church and you've like been faithful with your loaves and your fishes. And Jesus keeps doing amazing things that like we don't deserve, that we didn't like create. Some of these stories, it's just random. I had a guy ask me recently, he's like, how do you guys, how do you start a movement? He's a mega churchy guy. He said, how do you start a movement of churches? What's like the strategy? I was like, you like love people and talk about Jesus and teach people to follow Jesus. And it kind of happens. Another friend of mine, uh, he was with another guy on a trip who had a similar, like, I'm going to do it myself. And he was talking to a guy in his 70s who had seen churches planted in 100 nations. And he said, how do you start a church planting movement? And the old guy, this guy named Terry Virgo is kind of famous. He just said, uh, just make disciples. <laughs> and over time, it, it takes care of itself. Like, we're not responsible for the outcomes. We're responsible to be faithful, to tend. Does that make sense? And you guys have done that over and over and over again. Like the stories. People have been suicidal. whose lives have been saved in this church. People didn't think they were going to make it financially who made it in this church. People who needed, uh, uh, we can go on and on and on. But this church has been remarkable for a very long time in a ton of different ways. Um, I think I, there's like a dozen cars that have been given away in this church. Like, like I just think about certain things. They're just kind of fun. Like they just happen. We don't even, we're just, oh yeah, that's what happens in the kingdom. It's what it is. So I want to just affirm you and bless you and just tell you, like, I'm so proud of you as a pastor. And today I'm inviting us into more, um, but don't hear this as, like, we haven't done enough. Like, this is an invitation to see what Jesus wants to do next. So I have three things I want to talk about. One's long, two are short, again, for those counting at home. But number one, I think it's time to move from an inward-focused season to an outward-facing season. Moving from an inward season to an outward season. Um, over the last three or so years, I've shared this before, about 30% of Protestants left church and never came back during the pandemic. Pretty wild. Most churches have shrunk. By the way, that, 60, that 67 average number of churches, that was pre-pandemic. I don't know what it is now. We could be a, maybe we're a mega church now. I don't know. We're a double or whatever. We're not seven up, you know, we're like 30 up, whatever. But, um, but, but again, and during that time, um, so many churches shrunk, including ours, and it was a time for consolidation and care. It was time to get stable and look inward. Almost like the spiritual, relational equivalent of a natural disaster. We had to look for survivors, get a level of security, and stabilize them. I can't even get a lot of people uh, deconstructed during this time. I'm not, I'm not exaggerating when I say, like, survivors. Like, a lot of people walked away from the faith, walked away from church. Um, a lot of people were hurting and confused. A lot of people had stuff in their family of origin happening with, like, politics. and Like, there were so many things where people were really cynical, hurt, confused. 
And, uh, and again, we've spent tens of thousands of dollars the last two to three years on counseling subsidies, helping people get care, offering lots of spiritual direction and support for people struggling uh, from paying, helping pay for licensed clinicians to um, pastoral care all across the board. Um, and by the way, some of you need more of this, and that's more than okay. I'm not here to like, hey, we're out. We're out on spiritual direction and therapy. Get to work. Your needs don't matter. Jesus' mission. Okay, that's not what I'm saying. We've always wanted to be a community that says we want to minister out of overflow. We want to be healthy. But um, many of us, I believe, uh, uh, the Lord's calling us to look outside again and see other people who need blessing, who Jesus wants to reach through this church and through your life. Does that make sense? I think some of us, we've gotten too inwardly focused, which it is possible to do. The Bible definitely says it's easy to do that. Again, in a modern therapeutic context, everything's about how you feel versus what's true and real. Also, I think Jesus wants to, is highlighting us to combat the lie that we need to be perfectly healthy before we can serve the world around us in meaningful, sacrificial ways. Does that make sense? Like, if you think about the story of redemption around the world, um, do you know how many people around the world have access to therapy? And you know how many, you know what I mean? Like, and you know how many people need the gospel, right? Like, if you have to be perfectly healthy to do anything for the kingdom, this thing's already falling apart, okay? Again, not bagging on therapy. Like, I'm probably going to become a licensed therapist in the next couple of years. Like, like, I'm into it. But we can go, man, I've got to be perfect and whole in every way, emotionally and relationally. Um, do you know how many people in the world are illiterate still? A lot. Be a good stat to have for the sermon. I didn't plan that. But last time I checked, it was like an eighth of the world to this day are illiterate. And you know who needs Jesus? Still them. So let's believe this lie. You've got to be like a theologian. You've got to like go to seminary to tell anyone about Jesus. You have to have all this information. And the reality is if that's true, then a lot of our brothers and sisters in developing nations who don't have access to intellectual resources can't really follow Jesus because it's just about knowing stuff. But the Bible says, no, it's about, it's about becoming like Jesus and obeying him. Does that make sense? So again, I want us to, have, to be smart and have, be full of theological, true and theological knowledge. I'm not anti-theological knowledge. I'm not anti-spiritual direction and therapy. Those are great. It's just you're never going to be done. I believe in them so much, I'm saying they're never going to be done. And people still need to be blessed and loved and served. Does that make sense? So I believe that, that Jesus is calling us to offer ourselves up again in a sustainable way. Again, I think for a long time we haven't even thought about people meeting Jesus. Like we did when we first planned, you're like, we're doing this to, for people to meet Jesus. And so a couple of different uh, ways I believe he wants to do that this year. Uh, one is like actually believing in and practicing evangelism again. I know, old school, ugh, talking to people about Jesus. Um, want to do it in a really non-awkward way, want to do it really organically, but want to really get after it, like in, in inviting people into our lives again. And maybe you're doing that, but for a lot of us, I think post-pandemic has been tricky. And so we want to run um, some classes uh, this summer. We'll probably run a few of them. Uh, there's one by a guy named Sam Chan. Uh, there's a book and a course called How to Talk About Jesus Without Being That Guy, which I love. He's from Australia, which is way more post-Christian than here, and um, he's, he's, he's thought through that a lot. And then a mentor of mine, a guy named Jay Pathak, wrote a book called The Art of Neighboring, which we'll get into in a second. Phenomenal resource. Would love people to think through. But just to, like, have this on our radar again. Um, like, I'd encourage you guys to, to actually invite people to Easter, like, to go for it again as you're able to. So we'll have some cards. We'll have some stuff online social media stuff, whatever, but just encourage you, man, to invite people out. Um, uh, want to do, uh, planning on doing, and will do the next couple months, a survey on why you are or aren't inviting people to church. Not to pressure you, but to help you. To go, hey, what's making this hard? 
Now, as I say that, we're not going to water down our doctrine or our ethics or our morality to get people in the door. I have no interest in that. Um, but we aren't going to change what the gospel is to draw more people in. But the gospel should be the only stumbling block, meaning everything else should be up for discussion and change. D does that make sense? Um, in addition to that, this fall, um, kind of a, a long-term Easter or something, um, we're going to do a series from the Gospel of John um, on Jesus encounters, where Jesus interacts with different types of people. And so we're going to talk about, you know, Jesus and the ashamed, Jesus and the skeptic, Jesus and the hurting, Jesus and the mentally unwell, whatever. Like, we're going to look at these different things. We're going to, like, help people see in some way the Holy Spirit brings to bear the truth experientially of what is, is there textually, helping us see, man, Jesus could meet with me, and he might meet with me. And we're going to encourage you to invite people as we do that. Um, in addition to that, um, this year, uh, in terms of mercy and justice, uh, I don't know if Maria Lessie's here. She's in kids, classic Marie. Um, but uh, she loves kids. She loves students. Um, Marie and Wu-Tang, they're for the children. But um, Marie, uh, in her work with Young Life, uh, she works at, uh, primarily out of the Monarch School, which we've, uh, we've done a few events for them in the past. We did um, the Christmas shop for them in the past. Um, it's a school downtown that's for homeless students. Um, and it helps, again, we want to help meet kids' basic needs while also creating spaces for them to experience warm, secure attachment with caring adults and spaces for them to hear about Jesus, maybe for the first time. And so this Easter, uh, we're going to do uh, a fundraiser on Easter for her, uh, for her camp. So the money that comes in that day is not going to go to the church. It's going to go out to uh, bless her in that work. Does that make sense uh, to serve those kids? And we want to continue to look throughout the year for partnership opportunities. I'll do something like once a month. Um, I don't want to just do financial resources. That's awesome. Those are needed. But we want to create space to, to really care for them. Again, um, we have a ton of people who I think could bless some teens in addition to that, uh, this year we have uh, Give Love. Our big um, giveaway we do as a family of churches every year. Um, and again, just to be clear, very pro-therapy. Um, we're doing Give Love for our counseling network, okay? Uh, so uh, into that. A <clears throat> uh, few weeks back, I was at a Trauma Narrative Healing Framework Masterclass put on by the Seattle School of Theology and Psychology and uh, Dan Allinger and those guys, and we loved what we experienced. I was there with Ashley and Danny, um, but we were so aware that there are not enough workers to tend to these people in an ongoing way. And so we've been dreaming and praying, and in partnership with Ashley and um, a couple other clinicians uh, that will be really involved, we're looking to build out our counseling and care ministry and actually move to a full-blown counseling network. And so um, we want to serve churches here in Southern California to help provide counseling and care um, uh, across, uh, yeah, across Southern California. Uh, because right now, again, there's a crisis in the counseling care world, especially for people who have an interest in becoming like Jesus. Um, again, a couple of questions. Do you want a counselor who's competent and adequately trained? Hopefully you do. Uh, two, do you want a counselor who actually takes seriously who Jesus is and what he calls us to? Hopefully you do. Three, do you want a counselor who's affordable? For some of us, we're like, that's my only chance, Right. Even if you jump on your insurance so often, it's like, man, there isn't. Uh, recently, I had to look for a very specific therapist for a very specific thing. And I was talking to a bunch of my therapist friends. And at the end of the day, uh, on the, the Kaiser's scroll, I mean, I had dozens of therapists. None of them did this type of therapy. I wasn't even looking for a Christian. It was a very niche thing. But the idea is, like, uh, adequately trained, 
wants to encourage you to follow Jesus, you know, integrates their faith and is affordable, it's like pick one, maybe two. And so what we're going to do is work at, at taking trained clinicians and teaching them how to integrate their faith in the gospel in meaningful ways into their work. Again, we want to heavily subsidize the work so clinicians can still get paid a fair wage, but help keep costs down for those who can't afford it. And again, we want to build this slowly. Again, we don't want a sustainable sacrifice. Uh, Ash wants to bring on one intern this year she'll supervise for a year and change. Maybe we then have two people, and then we, we slowly move out from there. Uh, we had nine applications, though, and we hardly talked about it. So um, does that make sense? We just asked, hey, how many people do you have um, who'd love to help um, with this? Now, again, we aren't sure where this is going to land. We would like to raise $250,000 across the family of churches, which is our biggest uh, goal yet. Uh, our biggest before is 170. Um, we've always hit our goals. It's always been terrifying for me because um, I always feel like if we don't do it. It's like, but at the end of the day, it's like, no, man, this is what we're here to offer. Again, it's across our family of churches, not just us. Um, but we want to put this before and just say, okay, Lord, what, what do you want to do? And we'll see what happens. But again, these are all um, outwardly focusing things that will bless you, but they're important. And here, does that make sense? So I want to look outward, uh, which leads to my second point, And this is, this is probably our, one of our biggest looking outward moments is moving from a regional gathering to localized communities. Moving from a, regionali from a, region a regionalized gathering to localized communities. I think localized, the words I made up, I think it works though. So there's a dirty little secret about Restored Uptown. Relax. It's not a scandal. The dirty little secret is this. Many, matter of fact, at this point, a slim majority of the people who call Restored Uptown their church home do not live in Uptown. Now, many of you still do live in Uptown, about 40 to 45% of you. I'm not, that's great. Um, but about 55% live east of the 15, and the vast majority of the people who live east of the 15 live in this place called The Table, La Mesa, for those that speak Spanish. Now, here's the other thing. Um, about a year and a half ago, we, we were offered a building to use for free there to get something going. Now, there was some complexity, and for a while, we were wondering, should we move the whole church there? As time has gone on, it's been clear that quite a few people still live here and are coming through here, and I, I just don't think that that's necessarily the right move. Um, but there's this thing, and again, I just want to tell you, we are not in a denomination. To be offered a building is nuts. Makers down the street, they got that sick building because they're Southern Baptist. That's literally it. They're Southern Baptist. That was a dying Southern Baptist church, and they were like, hey, Check it out, you know. Now, I, for a lot of reasons, I don't want to be Southern Baptist. We don't have time to go through all of it. But it makes buildings a lot easier to kind of cop, you know what I mean, um, as the kids say. Um, or they used to, like, 20 years ago. Although my son, yesterday, Calvin, we went to Dark Horse. He's like, can I cop a donut? And she was like, what? He's like, he's, he's got real mid-90s energy. In addition to that, so here's the thing. The building, by the way, we've never been people who are persuaded by buildings. Whoever churches have buildings, or th three do, none of them own them. They all lease them. Um, they cost a lot of money usually. And to me, that money could get sowed into um, workers and discipleship, and it often kills churches' momentum. I've seen it a million times. And so for me, I'm like, and I've always said, unless we're given something or given a crazy sweetheart deal, I don't want to spend two-thirds of our budget, you know, like literally fire everyone, including me, and go two-thirds of the budget on a mortgage and it's like, cool, right? Um, so, so again, I'm not, like a, I'm not like a sucker for a building. But when buildings seemingly fall out of the sky and the guy won't leave me alone, 
That's not normal, guys. Like a humble, beautiful, Jesus-loving man's like, we think what you guys are doing would be amazing here. We think you're uniquely designed to reach La Mesa, a lot of people in your church, got a lot of young families, all this stuff. Um, and so that's important. Um, another thing I want to say is that our, um, quite a few people from our South Bay church live in La Mesa as well. Quite a few. I preached on multiplication at South Bay uh, a couple weeks ago, the value of multiplication they're growing through our family church's values. And a guy walked up. He's like, hey, man, you ever thought about La Mesa? I was like, whoa. <laughs> Sounds like you're my guy. And it's funny because I was like, man, TJ, Philippines, Denver. Like, I'm throwing that stuff out. He's like, dude, what about La Mesa? So I didn't touch that in the sermon. In addition to that, we've always believed that if possible, it's always been a value of ours, you should have as much proximity to your church community as possible. It's always been, it's been a subcategory of our value of family and mission because, like, it's hard to do life together when you're never together, right? I love that, guys. 30 minutes away. We hang out once a month in a room of 80 other people. I give him a couple nods. That's my guy. Cool. Like, you're probably not building deep community. Koinonia, the Bible talks about. Um, again, and again, this has been hard. Whenever people move away, I always say, if you move more than 20 minutes away, I go, you should probably find another church. Like, if it's 20 minutes away without traffic or further, the odds of you when traffic hits, the odds of you with, you know, you get kids involved, work schedules, sport, like, that gets harder and harder to do, and it makes your life disintegrated. Does that, does that make sense? Um, and so here's one thing I know. It's easier to grow in community with each other if you live near each other. That's just a reality. It's also easier to reach people that don't know Jesus, which I mentioned earlier, evangelism. Can't get away from it. If it right? Um, when many of us no longer go into the office or into work, which is a lot of our realities, most of the people in your life who don't know Jesus that you're actually in a relationship with are likely in your family of origin or are your actual believe it or not, neighbors. When Jesus says, love your neighbors, he's like, like your next door neighbor. Does that make sense? Um, and, uh, and, and so here's one of the things that I've been thinking about is I think one of the ways, I think post-COVID has been tricky for a lot of reasons in terms of relationships. We talked about that before. We tried to launch an alpha. I think people's, the amount of people, ha the amount of friends people have that are real friends that you talk about real things like spirituality with, who aren't already believers, who aren't your family, it's just never been smaller for a lot of people because of how workplaces have shifted, a lot of movements, transients, all that stuff. I do think the dust is starting to settle and we're getting used to the new normal. That'll probably be how it is for a while. Um, so that being said, I've been thinking about this and I, and I, I think that, um, for example, it's probably tricky for um, someone who lives like, kind of deep in La Mesa, who's befriending someone in our church. Julia told me this week, she said, I have a coworker, and she was like, my kids are asking me about church. We used to be Catholic. I don't know what to do about it. Uh, maybe I could come to your church. And she's like, where is it? She's like, North Park. She's like, oh, it's pretty far, right? And so again, that's, does that make sense? She's like kind of asking to come. Uh, and again, and there's a lot of stories like that. I have a lot of people that have told me, oh man, I have a, a bunch of people. There's uh, one couple in our church. like, we have everyone on our street, I think would come to church if it was more local. And so it's just, it's just easier to be like, hey, we're right here. Does that make sense? Now, um, so that means like things like quality socials, right? Like you're deep limit. It's like, hey, man, do you want to go to the North Park Brewing in Mission Hills at 6 p.m. after you picked your kids up from soccer practice? D does that make sense? Now, maybe people are going to make that work. Probably a lot of people aren't. Does that make sense? Different areas, different communities have different needs. Um, there's different open doors, different uh, events, right? Back in the, When we started the church back in the day, it was like, like, polite provisions was a missional hub. 
right? You can't bring your kids in there, guys, right? I can't even get in there without an ID because I always get busted for not following the rules. Like, consortium, get it together, right? That's not a super, right? Like, like for some of us, that might work. For a lot of us, um, it's going to be like at the park, right? Or getting, and again, a lot of us have a uh, <laughs> big park guy. Uh, uh, you know, it's going to be your kids go to school with their kids. It's going to be um, your kids are playing soccer together or basketball, or whatever it is in the general region. And so more and more, it seems like, okay, this could be a reality. I remember um, San Diego City beat uh, a couple years ago, about 10 years ago now. This has been going on for a while. Um, they, there were an article called the Hipster Underground Railroad, which is a weird phrase that they probably would retract because it's probably get, get them canceled now. Um, but what they were getting at was the movement of people from North Park to La Mesa, from Little Italy in North Park to La Mesa when they have kids. They're like, cool, this small house, cool, I don't need to live by cool restaurants, I just need my kids to be able to fall asleep. Now, some of us have, some of us, we have the means and we have like a great space. I mean, Royce House have an incredible house. It's in North Park. I think they have a little bit of space and they're near cool stuff. Um, but for a lot of people, it's just, it's, it's trickier, right? And so the reality is, for a lot of people, it's, it's not always a reality. And so this is, by the way, this is happening outside of our church. This seems to be like a San Diego, it's like, geese fly south for the winter it's like people leave uptown with two kids right um some go some go to claremont uh shingles some go east some go right like like but but it does seem like for a lot of people it's tricky to be here uh long term uh and so that made me think like man uh in terms of our evangelism stuff like that things like quality socials or um like dude we'd have a church parking lot it's pretty og church but it works to this day in south bay i do them all the time like we could do a trunk or treat and people would flock out right? Uh, you know what that is? It's like people used to think Halloween was the devils in churches. And so on Halloween, they'd go, you know what's less satanic than a house? A car trunk. They're like, hey, you want candy out of my trunk, right? But, but the point is, is you decorated a theme. People come out. It's really cool. Um, that church, the, the church we, we potentially use, they have a full court outdoor basketball court. You can, you, again, kids, basketball, skateboard, whatever it is, youth group stuff. Like there's, there's options there. And so, in a real, they have a youth room. That's like the side, whatever. It's like, it's a cool thing. Um, and so, what I've been thinking about in terms of outreach is considering, with our South Bay Church's partners, planting a new church in La Mesa in 2025, okay? So, not, not tomorrow, not in a while, but we would love to lay some groundwork in 2024 of this year. Does, does that make sense? We don't want to move the church there. Uh, again, I'll get into a model in a second. Um, I think that Uptown also can in a sense be replanted to be more outward facing for this neighborhood that it's actually in. Does that make sense? And then down the line, LaMace could do the same. Now, here's what I want to say. I understand that I can kind of see some stuff. You know, again, this building thing, it's kind of like Elijah, like a little cloud. It's like, man, I think I see something. I'm not, I'm not a fortune teller. I'm not a prophet. I don't know how it's going to work. This might not be a good thing to do at all. It might not work out at all. Um, I also want to say, the other thing I want to hit hard is I want to acknowledge that there would be a lot of relational complexity for the room if we multiplied. I just asked people you missed, you raised their hands. Um, that's always hard to do. I think it's what we see throughout the book of Acts. It's still hard. Does that make sense? Um, and so I, I, I don't want to do this fast. I would want us to pray through it, seek God together, and see if it's even what we should be doing. As elders, we're not trying to just make this decision. Uh, we don't know. So what we want to do is explore it. Um, so, so, so for 2024, a couple of things I've been thinking about, uh, and again, this is in church history, what I'm describing is a gathered and scattered model. So we gather together and then we scatter out, um, which again, in church history is not a new concept. In the book of Acts chapter two, 
verses 42 to 47, it says this. It says, they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, to the fellowship. Again, fellowship there, guys, it's a deep connection. Koinonia is deep connection forged through suffering. It's like we're in it, the highs and the lows of life. Again, they were being persecuted. So there's, there's the apostles' teaching, deep community, the breaking of bread, they're eating together, taking communion, and to prayer. Verse 43, everyone was filled with awe. And many wonders and signs were being performed through the apostles. Now all the believers were together and held all things in common. They sold their possessions and property and distributed the proceeds to all as any had need. Again, this isn't like communism, like you have to turn all your stuff in. It's, it's you own stuff, but you're making sure no one has need in the church family. They don't have, it's not, it's not that no one has anything. It's that no one goes without the thing that they need. Verse 46, every day, what do you guys think every day means in Greek? Every day, yeah, every day, or a day. They devoted themselves to meeting together in the temple and broke bread from house to house. They ate their food with joyful and sincere hearts, praising God and enjoying the number of all the people. Every day, the Lord added to their number those who were being saved, which sounds pretty great to me. I really want to highlight verse 46. There are two spaces they seem to be, and they're not the same place. There are temple courts, which would be, if you go to the temple today, in Jerusalem, uh, the, 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 west, the Wailing Wall in Jerusalem, the Western Wall, uh, that's a part of the temple, and right inside there, there's the courts. Uh, matter of fact, I preached a sermon on this, well, I don't know, it always gets a little weird with the Christian tourism stuff, but, um, um, but I preached a sermon on the, the stairs where they say Peter probably would have preached uh, at Pentecost. So it's right around the temple. It's a gathering space that would have been familiar for, for most of the Hebrew folks. Most people in the first early church were Hebrew or Jewish. Um, and so they have a space where they're gathering, but then they also have this house-to-house dynamic. So they all, there's these big gatherings with hundreds to thousands of people at Pentecost. And then there are these house-to-houses. And no one had a house that was doing thousands of people. Even the wealthy, you know, they, they would do, you know, dozens to hundreds. So there's temple courts where they gather, and then there's house to house. And so the thing we're praying through and considering is, is, is maintaining one Sunday gathering in Uptown, through, definitely through the end of the year. We're not trying to change this up, add too much to anyone's plate. Um, and this would be kind of a temple court space. We all come together. Does that make sense? Like we've been doing. But the thing that I'm thinking about or praying about or, or just wondering is maybe scattering throughout the city in kind of two broader areas. Uh, if you're familiar with the Catholic tradition, Anglican tradition, uh, they, talk about, they talk about this idea of a parish. And you have an area where ministry happens, an area where you're reaching people, an area of, you're discipling, an area you're kind of responsible for spiritually. Does that make sense? And so what we're toying with is this idea of uptown getting more uptown centric and La Mesa getting more La Mesa centric for lack of a better term in terms of evangelism and community life okay now um, one of the things that's true about our GCs some of them we have one group that I think is all La Mesa it's like they're right if they actually if they don't join this plant it just doesn't work uh, I think it's kind of the case I'm not gonna name names um, we have some groups that are pretty much just uptown um, there are some groups that I'll just call affectionately tweeners all right tweener groups NFL draft, they talk a lot about tweeners. You're defensive end, you're a linebacker. You, you could play either position, quarterback, receiver, that kind of thing. Um, running back, receiver. Uh, 
groups where it's like, hey, there are people that represent both areas. And so probably over time, we'd want you to pray about maybe joining a group that's more regional. Now, as I say that, we are not going to mandate anything like Nazis. We're not going to like, you know, secret police, eldership, knocking on doors, raids, raiding small groups. You live in LeMay, so you got to go, right? We're not doing that. But we want to lovingly, again, and here's the thing, by the way, if not enough people respond, we are submitted to the spirit of God in his people. If not enough people respond, they go, we're cool to just maintain this how this is. We've got to get creative about doing a regional thing, and it is what it is. However, if enough people respond, then we, we'd want to encourage that to happen. But, we, but again, we want to lovingly encourage people. And again, I'm not even sure about that yet. But it's one of the ways that I could see this shaking out over the rest of the year is that we start to do maybe separate quality socials and getting our GCs to be more regional. Does that make sense? Now, one of the things I've learned uh, in marriage therapy, which has been really helpful, and this is a, this is a, a family system, um, is my wife is very practical, and I'm a dreamer, okay? By the way, a lot of my dreams have come true. Like, I'm not, like, just out here wasting time. I'm a high-level strategic, actually, is what I've been told by um, some pretty legit leaders, like some people that have led some amazing things. Uh, but, I, but I'm not a crazy-in-the-detail guy. My wife goes, until I see the details, right? It's almost like Thomas with Jesus. He's like, until I see his hands, I can't believe, right? She's like, until I see the flow chart and the building and the, you know, like I, I struggle to see it, you know? And so I just want to say, you might go, I don't know how it's going to work. And I'm just saying, for now, we don't know. But I just want to say, right now, this is a proposed dream we're putting before the Lord, a proposed idea. I know he wants to reach people. I know he wants to reach more people than he's currently reaching through the way our church is currently structured. And I'm open to his leading. And right now, again, buildings falling out of the sky, not an everyday occurrence. I want to pay attention to that. Does that make sense? A lot of people live out there. We didn't ask anyone to move out there. Frankly, I was sad when it started. It's like they're leaving us, man. Right? We're going to become an East County church. You know, you start having these fears. You know, you know what that means. If you know, you know, right? I grew up in South Bay. There's a lot of stereotypes. Maybe I need to repent of them. I like the food better here, right? I don't like gun racks. You, you get what I'm saying, right? La Mesa, again, kind of a JV East County. It's kind of a, it's not fully East County. It's not fully here. It's a tweener. It's a tweener area. Now, now my point is, right, it, it's, it's, it's like the city, but it's like East County. It, it's a blend of things. It's also, um, by the way, on the border with like Lemon Grove and um, Southeast San Diego, and it's actually more diverse than people realize, too. So, so there's a lot going on with La Mesa that's interesting. SDSU's right there. There's a lot of stuff that's interesting. Uh, my, but I still was bummed out when it was happening, if that makes sense. So I'm not like, I love it. I'm just saying this tension's been here long enough. We haven't talked about it, and all we want to do is start talking about it and praying about it together. Does that make sense? We're not going to, like, put a line in the sand, check people's papers, push people out. We're not trying to strong arm anybody. Um, but we do want us to be open to what this is. Again, if this railroad exists, like, we got to be, all right, man, do we know how to navigate this train? Because <laughs> people on the train need Jesus. And a lot of people on the train anyways. Might as well reach Jesus together as you, you go out to have restaurants that existed here first. If they then copy there. Now, Acts 13, like, City Tacos, never seen this before. Swamis, get out of town. Okay. Dark Horse, are you, okay, Acts 13. Maria Orta one time said, I think we can plant a church anywhere there's a dark horse. I was like, it's probably true. Acts 13, verses 1 through 3. This is the last passage, and we'll close here in a second. It says, Now in the church at Antioch, there were prophets and teachers. 
Barnabas, Simeon, who was called Niger, Lucius of Cyrene, which, by the way, means we have two Africans in the mix here. Uh, we've got Manane, a close friend of Herod the Textrarch, uh, a Greek, very Roman man, and Saul. We've got this diverse church. Uh, they're diverse in terms of gifting, prophets and teachers, and they're diverse racially. Verse 2 says, as they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, set apart for me Barnabas and Saul, who becomes Paul, for the work to which I have called them, that after they had fasted and prayed and laid hands on them, they sent them off. Again, what I love about this, I have been in missions teams meetings with 9,000 spreadsheets. People are burning out and not very many people are meeting Jesus. And the first missionaries who were ever sent out, they called a meeting to pray and worship. And they're like, the, Lord, the Spirit said, set apart for me Barnabas and Paul. And one of the greatest things we can do as spiritual leaders is, again, our role is to, um, you've heard, probably heard this analogy before, is to put the sail up and to let the wind of the Spirit dictate where we go. Our job is to create an environment. It's God's job to show up. It's our job to plant. It's just his job to call the growth, cause the growth. Does that make sense? We water, we plant, First Corinthians 3, all that stuff. But at the end of the day, we surrender the outcomes to the Lord. That's true, by the way, if you're a Christian, you have a business. That's true if you're a Christian and you have a family. That's true if you're, we, we do our parts and we trust him to do his thing. We do our best to be responsible to our finances, right, as people, and then we, we trust him because markets are uncertain. On the flip side, um, uh, you know, or, or another example of that would be, yeah, the direction of churches. I, I don't, I mean, I, 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 why this is called Direction Sunday instead of Vision Sunday. Again, Vision Sunday is not, vision isn't in the Bible in the way that we think of it. I taught a whole sermon on it if you want to hear it. It's a business idea that we've adopted, which often leads to just a sinful man going, how ambitious do I feel this year? And how hard do I want to drive the sheep? I don't want to be a sheep driver, okay? It's a weird name, weird, right? Pat, I'm a sheep driver. I want to be a person who goes, um, which you see in the scriptures as leaders going, all right, we're, we're going out front, right? We're, which means we're taking risks. We're going out front. Our hands are open. We're not on top. We're in the front. And we're moving into uncharted territory. By the way, if we plant a church, there will be spiritual warfare. You already know. That's a church planning promise from the Lord, okay? It will be messy at times. It'll probably feel like Acts 6 at times, which we'll get into in a second. But we want to go before the Lord and ask him what he wants. Does that make sense? So I have ideas of how this could look. I could see it being like in the fall after we've done a lot of teaching around um, evangelism and reaching people. Uh, maybe this church grows to where we need two services here. Genuinely. It's happened before. It could happen again. Um, and we're growing. And then it's like, whatever. We're, we're gathered here and then we're scattered in these parish thing and maybe the gcs are more regionalized and, or maybe it's a different model altogether or maybe god goes it, it looks good but it's not good does that make sense it, it, that happens in the bible too it's like that building in your own in your mind that makes sense buildings don't fall out of the sky god's like i make buildings fall out of the sky all the time does that make sense so what we're going to do in the spirit of acts 13 because we're going to have a night of worship prayer and discussion for those interested in seeing a church launch in la mesa which means on april 3rd we're going to have our first La Mesa community gathering for those who are interested in praying into this idea. So it's Wednesday, April 3rd. It's not 3 to 6 p.m. April 3rd at 6 p.m. That's my bad. Um, it's going to be, we'll, we'll send the thing out to Orange Avenue. People from South Bay will come. Um, I think the worship leader from Australia LA is going to come lead worship. Uh, it's going to be a fun night to seek God together and ask him what he wants to do through our community. Does that make sense? So we have a sense, and again, this is a big part of healthy spiritual leadership. You have a sense of what God is doing, 
and then you invite others, you pray into what that is and you get more clarity as you go and you do your best. No one's perfect. You want to do your best to step into the light that you see. Does that make sense? And over time, we trust him with those results. And that's all this is. Again, we may not see a gathering in La Mesa that's separate ever. We may see one in January. We may see one at Easter 2025. We may, does that make sense? But we want to be open to this. Um, and again, just want to say, last thing on this point, I'm not, I don't want to downplay, and I've lived it, so you can't really come at me on it, to be honest. I'll be like, I'm empathetic, and I'm taking it seriously. But, but there are relational, there's relational complexity if a church multiplies, there always is. Does that make sense? But there's a difference between something hurting and something harming us. For us to grow as people and in communities at times, so we have to go, this hurts, but it's good for me. I have to, we have to teach our kids that all the time. Just because something hurts doesn't mean it's harming you. Does that make sense? There's a difference between being cut open for surgery and being cut open by a serial killer. Very different vibes. Very similar pain, I just, I mean, experience for your body, whatever it is. So, so uh, sorry for bringing up serial killers in a vision talk. It's probably not helpful. My point is, I'm, I just want to say this will hurt. We're going to have to grieve together and lament a change if a change happens in 2025. Does that make sense? So everyone breathe out. Don't go, he's not considering. I'm considering it a lot. And it's going to take time to discern and walk into. Um, which leads to our last big shift. Um, this will be a very short point because I'm going to preach a whole sermon on it in a few weeks. Um, but we're moving from a small group of leaders to a larger group of leaders. Small group of leaders uh, to a larger group of leaders. As the church grows and as the church expands, the ministries expand, and there's more complexity, we're going to need more help. We're going to need more assistance. We're going to need more. Um, and one thing that we have never done in this church is ordained deacons, uh, which everyone's like, man, I'd love a deacon, right? Um, uh, you, you know, man, I miss, uh, where are deacons? Now, here's the thing. Uh, in Acts 6, most people think this is the first time we see deacons on the scene. Uh, deacons show up because food is not being distributed uh, evenly between the Jewish and Greek widows in a culture where people were being cut off from their families for following Jesus. The church stepped in, again, kind of like Acts 2, to feed them to make sure that they didn't have nothing. And, um, and people were being neglected, and, uh, and it was a very divisive thing. It was a logistical nightmare. There was also a racial component to it. It was a divided church. And the apostles appoint um, these men that it says are full of the Holy Spirit and, and, and wisdom. And they appoint them to do this work. And, and one of the things that they say is, um, it, uh, Peter says, it is not good for us to wait tables. Which sounds like a narcissistic leader who's like, oh, I'm too big for that. I don't wait tables, right? In the Greek, what it's saying is it's not good for us to spend our time on this because we're neglecting the thing that we are called to do, which is the, leadership of the, the spiritual leadership of the church, the prayer, the ministry of the word, um, leading into discipleship and that stuff. Does that make sense? So, so he's saying, hey, we can't ignore this logistical need. It's a big thing. And frankly, we're limited as people. And I love that. If the apostles who'd spent three years with Jesus are limited sometimes in their administration, I'm like, great. But also there's a reality that none of us have capacity fully. We, none of us have fully everything that we need. And so uh, Acts 6, we see deacons come in and they, um, they step in. And uh, so deacons in the Bible, one of the things that you see them do is they, they bring um, unity where there's division. They bring order where there's chaos. And they are creative problem solvers. And they're examples of spiritual maturity. So they're leading service in an area, and they free up um, elders and spiritual leaders to, 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 to focus on that. Does that make sense? Um, again, we've been perpetually planning churches. We lost a lot of leaders over the years. Um, our staff has had turnover because we moved people around. Um, and at the end of the day, we just haven't had time. Now, here's the thing I would say is um, deacons are people who lead in service. And so the reality is, sorry, two more things on deacons. 
One is um, deacons aren't like elders in that um, deacons exist to meet a specific need that shows up at a time. And when that need's gone, they may or may not still be deacons because it's tied to that role. They're, they're, they're leading in service in an area. So, for example, um, I have a friend who used to lead a church in Detroit. They had a snow shoveling ministry that deacons led. Okay, If we started that ministry, it, it, would just, it wouldn't get a lot of use, right? It's a real problem if it is. Global warming's wild. That would be real wild, right? Um, you know, churches that have quite a few elderly people, they, they have deacons often will lead visitation ministry to, to see people in old folks' homes and um, uh, stuff like that. Um, people, uh, people in churches with a ton of young kids, right? Kids ministry. We, we still need more kids ministry workers. It's a big deal. I know people, some people aren't stoked on it. Like genuinely, it's a big part of us just being the church together. Um, we're at a point where we have to start turning kids away in a few months' time if we were trying to maintain a once-a-month service thing. And so, you know, grabbing that stuff's important. But, 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 but in a, a church with a lot of kids, kids' ministry is a big deal. If you're in a church with no kids, right, you have, like, no kids and, and 80 people and old folks, you know, like, like, the visitation should take precedence, vice versa. So, so you're meeting the needs of the local community um, that, that are there at the time. So, so, again, you don't have to have deacons necessarily, um, but they're important. And here's the thing. We do have them. We just want to honor them. And actually, does that make sense? We have some that I think actually do function as deacons already. Um, but again, where elders have the same job kind of in any church that they're in, deacons have a really specific job that's tied to what they're doing. Um, and they're all, again, they're also people who bring unity and they're examples to the church. Um, and so, so that's really important, and we already have them. Uh, and the last thing is, is we will be, in, in, in the next few months, uh, I think it's in April or May, we're, we're planning on ordaining deacons. We'd love to ordain eight deacons when we're talking about it. Um, and again, the, the goal is that they would come alongside the elders to help us do what we're doing much better. Does that make sense? Um, uh, and, and so to see things run more efficiently and to see, again, this thing's going to require just more administrative minds. And it's going to require uh, more clarity around certain things. So as we move from potentially one to two churches or moving to a regional space or, or whatever it is. So... That being said, as we close, I'll call, um, is Marielle on? Again, I was late with the car. Th okay, Mario, you want to come on up? Um, we can hit the lights. And, and here's what I want to do this morning is just say, I just laid out a ton of stuff. They roughly fit into those three bullet points thinking about moving from an inwardly focused season to an out outward focused season, to see the community around us in terms of evangelism, mercy, and justice. Um, uh, you know, the sub subs on that is growing in evangelism, inviting people into community, doing a series around that. Um, also trying to do more regionalized stuff to reach people. Um, the other bit, you know, within that, this idea of potentially doing the La Mesa thing. Also give love, try to raise a quarter million dollars for the counseling center. Um, th there's a lot of outwardly focused things, um, helping Monarch School, Again, we'll send some stuff out that has all this on it. But what I want us to do is to start praying about what does it look like? What, what is God calling you to help make these things happen, if anything? Um, by the way, again, we'd love for you to actually come on April 3rd if you can't make it, if you're interested. And by the way, even if you're not planning on joining the La Mesa team or whatever, if that ever comes to fruition, uh, we'd love for you to come to the worship night to pray with us. We'd love to ask God for direction. I've had plenty of times where prophetic leaders have spoken to me about a church that they are not involved in or joining, but they brought in clarity that was really helpful around things like timing. I remember when we first planted the church, uh, Brad Sarian wanted to plant in Encinitas for obvious reasons. And he was like real committed to it. He's like, I think Abigail's parents are gonna be there soon and 
we could do something there for them, you know? But, um, but, but he had this heart and he also was like, man, I want to do it soon. I, I'll never forget, um, uh, Alicia Aiken was part of Alicia Park back in the day, uh, was at this meeting in Faye Gutierrez, who's now in South Bay. It's kind of interesting. Um, they were there and, um, we had a night of prayer and prophecy. And here's the thing I, we had originally talked about Brad planting within a year. And I just remember thinking he's not ready, but I don't want to be a dream crusher, right? Words of Kanye West, you know, dream crushers kill your self-esteem. Uh, and, and I didn't want to do that, but I was worried about him and Sarah and what it would mean and stuff like that. And um, at the same time, what I didn't know is that simultaneously, Brad was feeling pressure to plant and he didn't feel like he was ready. And he didn't want to let me down as a mentor. So we're not talking about that really. I'm nervous to crush his dreams. He's nervous to say, I think the stream's too crazy, whatever it is. We're nervous about that. Uh, and then on top of that, you want to plant in Encinitas and stuff, which uh, has been called the uh, graveyard of church plants. So um, there's one that made it, and they had a, there's one that I know of, a friend of mine that leads a church right now that's kind of thriving. They have a ton of denominational money and help that goes in there. It's, it's, it's a whole thing, which we did not have. Um, so anyways, he wanted to do Encinitas, and then we've seen what happened in L.A., right? And, and I'll never forget, man, Alicia, she said, I have a prophetic picture of a pregnant woman and I feel like the woman is restored uptown. And I feel like the baby is our first church plant. And again, it's probably at any church, we didn't think, you know, how it was going to work. And she said, you know, if, if, if a mother gives birth to a baby too soon, it endangers the life of the child. And, it, and if a mother gives birth too late, it endangers the life of the mother. And so the timing is really important. And it felt 0% manipulative. It felt like it was God. She didn't even have full clarity on all the stuff we were talking about internally and, um, and not talking about at the same time. So we had a plan that was publicly facing. And then Faye Gutierrez, um, she, uh, her and James used to do, um, they might still do this, I don't know, um, but, but they used to do like, they would make invitations for weddings and they would do like old school stamps and it was kind of like vintage -y, you know, be like a, a storefront now in university, but kind of stamps and, uh, and they would make invitations, sorry, and calligraphy and, and cool stuff. And um, she just said, one of the things about stamping is you have to, after each, each time you stamp an envelope, you have to re-stamp and make sure that the, the stamp is, is taking in all of the ink that it needs from the stamp pad. Otherwise, the stamps get uh, more, they get uh, harder and harder to see, like they're, um, yeah, like, yeah, it gets more and more faint to where you can't really see it anymore. And she said, I feel like God's saying, like, our next church plant, we might need to take a little bit more time because we need to fully take in the values and the cultures and the relationships need more work before that happens. That was the same night. And I just want to tell you, that was super helpful. Does that make sense? Neither of them joined Brad's church, right? Um, not only did he not plant in a year, he didn't plant in Encinitas. He, plants, he planted in a much more beautiful place, the San Fernando Valley. Which, by the way, again, that's why we need God's leading. You would not have chose that. I've been up there. I'm leading an elder cohort every other week. They've got five people ready to become elders. They're probably going to end up with seven this year. This thing's growing, um, and people's lives are being radically transformed. I don't have time for all the stories. But do you see how, like, being open to what God wants to do shapes it? And so um, we gen when I say, like, we're open, we're not sure. We have ideas and inklings, but we're not sure. I mean that. It would be irresponsible to pretend the inklings aren't there, to, to not admit the little clouds there, but also it would be irresponsible uh, to say, we know exactly how it's going to work. We're just going to do it. We've got a plan. So yeah, April uh, 4th, we'd love to invite you into that. Um, also, in addition to that, um, 
if you are really wrestling with this emotionally, just the thought of change, I already know, again, we're a family system. In a room this size, there's already change anxiety. That's what they call it. And that happens for people that even are pro the change that's been proposed. This just happens in you. And I just want to say again, we'd love to talk about that with you. We'd love to sit with you. We don't expect you to just love that we're considering this. Uh, does that make sense? But I would love to see two communities thriving in two years' time in both places. Um, and and I, I, can, I can envision that as a human, but I don't know what God wants. He's way more creative than me, and he's given all of you his spirit to make you creative as well. Now, um, because I was late to work today, we are now late. So we're right where we're supposed to end. So this is going to be a, um, a soft close, which means um, if you have kids in kids' ministry, go get your kids. There's probably a full-scale riot going on right now. And two, um, uh, yeah, if you just need to go, you need to go. Um, for the rest of us, though, if you want to stay and take communion, communion will be available to remember what Jesus did for us, um, the way that he has, has met our needs abundantly more than we could ask or imagine through his cross and resurrection. If you'd like to, to just sit and sing or, or just sit and let the worship pour over you, just have a moment to yourself to ask God, what are you calling me to next? And what, what of the things Andy shared, is there anything that you're leaning, you're calling me into? Is there anything you're calling me to share? Because uh, we'd love to hear that, you know, both what's hard for you, but also what you feel like God might be saying. And so I'll pray. And then in worship, we'll, we'll go. But again, if, if you have kids, please go get them. Um, and then if you're not going to hang for the worship, or you don't want to sing or you don't want to take communion, there's no problem with that. Um, but if you guys go outside to kind of socialize and talk, because uh, we just don't want to water down what's happening in here. You're not less spiritual. You are loved by Jesus. You're incredible. Um, but we want to create space for those who just want to pray, engage with God, communion, worship, that good stuff. So I'll pray. You're dismissed if, 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 if you have kids. Um, but for the rest of us, I'll pray us into worship. And then, um, yeah, we're available from now. We're available every day as pastors. So if you have questions, thoughts, ideas uh, about any of this stuff, we'd love to hear it. Um, Father, thank you for, again, your abundant provision. Thank you for your care. Thank you that you see us and that you're for us and that you care about us and that you consistently prepare places for us and you provide for us. And Father, um, this morning as a church, we, we have things that we, we have an inkling that, that maybe you want to do something. I think about the amount of counselors in our family of churches and the amount of counselors who told me they want to be a part of a counseling network. And I go, man, that could be amazing, but it might not be what you want. I look at a building and an opportunity and I go, maybe, maybe that could be a great spot for a future church plant, but I don't know what you want yet. These are just inklings. Lord, there's men and women in this church that I think would make incredible deacons, but they may not have the time or capacity to step into a more formal role with more formal responsibilities in this season of life. So uh, we open our hands to you and we ask you to guide us this year. We ask for clarity on our compass and wind in our sail as you take us wherever it is you long for us to go next together. In Jesus' name, amen.